weeks ago that it had tested a nuclear bomb. It's been met with widespread condemnation and alarm by the world's leaders. The concern is not just that the reclusive leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-il, and his massive army might actually use such a weapon in conflict, but that other smaller nations might acquire nuclear bombs as well. Uh, Such a scenario ratchets up the odds that sooner or later a nuclear conflict will erupt with a massive loss of life and irreparable damage to our planet. But just imagine for a moment that nuclear weapons were freely available to anyone who wanted to purchase one. You could just log on to Amazon and say, yeah, I'll have a 10 megaton bomb. Or you could go into a shop on Gray's, maybe would sell them on uh, George Street and say, uh, well, what are you doing in nuclear bombs this week? Well, of course, it's ridiculous and just thankful. All of us should be thankful that such a scenario is impossible. Such a likelihood is remote. But there is a dangerous weapon that everyone owns. One that we are born with, and one that can cause enormous damage to others and ourselves. That weapon, of course, we've heard it in the children's talk, is the tongue. We all have the capacity for speech. And I was struck again as Rodney read James 3. What a serious issue this is, yet how much, how little we focus on the influence that words can have. And we focus instead on other things. Wasn't it a terrible tragedy that the naturalist Steve Irwin, a man who had wrestled with crocodiles, handled dangerous snakes, was killed by a stingray. Stingrays are known as the pussycat of the sea. I've put my arms underneath a six-foot one in the Cayman Islands. And yet, many of us are oblivious to the dangerous weapon that we have in our mouths, and instead we focus on other things, and we say things like, uh, actions speak louder than words, which tends to make us think, well, words aren't that important. And then we say stupid things like, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never harm me. Of course they can. Now, one person, of course, who took the issue of words very seriously is the man that we've been studying, the letter that he wrote, James, the half-brother of Jesus. We've been looking at that in our small groups. Don't forget, our small groups will be studying again this week, Tuesdays and Thursdays. If you don't belong to a home fellowship, then sign up for one this week. We'll get you into a group. It's a very profitable way to earth what we're studying together in practical ways. And we've seen already in this letter, if you've been with us in the series and studying in small groups, uh, that James has issued some pretty stern warnings about the tongue. Do you remember early on in the letter, chapter 1, verse 19, he says, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And then he goes on later in the chapter to say, If anyone considers himself religious, and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself, and his religion is worthless. It's verse 26 of chapter 1. James says this very clearly. If we claim to have faith, and yet there is no visible evidence of that faith outworked in our lives, then we are fooling ourselves. Genuine faith, he says, will always be seen in deeds or works, the old versions translated. And the key statement in his letter that we looked at in our last study is in chapter 2, verse 26. 
Faith without works is dead. That's why we've chosen this theme. Faith that works. That's the key statement in his letter. Now, isn't it interesting? Having said that, what is the very first thing that he focuses on as a work or a deed, which is evidence of faith? It's the subject of the tongue or the mouth. And in this section, which is full of these vivid images, he explains why the taming of the tongue is such a difficult thing. So let's look together uh, more carefully at what, he's, what he writes in James 3, verses 1 to 12. It really will help to have a Bible in front of you as we look at this together. More importantly, let's be quick to listen to what God wants to say to us about this subject today. For I suspect that very few of us take this subject seriously enough to our own detriment, let alone that of other people. First, let me put a prayer on the screen that we can pray, prayer from the Psalms, that we can affirm by saying, Amen. A prayer before hearing God's word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 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 Thank you. Now, I've struggled a bit to try and put together some sort of coherent way of focusing on these verses. So, I have three words which are kind of like pegs to hang on what I want to say. And they begin with the same letter, which helps some people and hinders others. But if it helps you, here we go. All right. Here's the first word that I want to focus on, which you find in the first few verses. Verses 1 to 4. The word direction. What do I mean by that? Let me put it in a simple statement. The tongue determines your destiny. Now, as you look at chapter 3, it may seem strange that James begins this new section by talking about teachers. And even stranger, that he seems to discourage anyone from wanting to become a teacher. But look more closely at this focus on the teacher. All of us talk, some more than others. We need to talk to live our lives. Most of us couldn't do our jobs unless we were isolated as lighthouse keepers or something like that, without communicating with other people. But above all others, the teacher is a talker. Personal testimony. That's what he does for a living. He communicates with others by speaking to them, by informing, explaining, illustrating, inspiring, warning, encouraging. That's true of all teachers. It was great the other week to have um, a prayer meeting focusing on those who are teachers and to pray specifically for them. And I hope we continue to do that. But James here is speaking of a particular kind of teacher. He's talking about teachers in the Christian community. Those who have been interested with communicating not just truth, but God's truth. In fact, all truth, of course, real truth, is God's truth. Now, it's one thing to talk to people in general on all sorts of subjects. And as we'll see, all our words can have a powerful effect, for good or evil. But a teacher who is entrusted with speaking God's words, by expounding God's word, is in a different league, for he is accountable to God for what he says. Even as I say that, I'm aware that everything I say this morning... And everything I've preached in this church for over 14 years, Sunday by Sunday, one day I'll have to give an account to God for it. 
Kind of sobering thought, isn't it? In fact, though, before you pause and say, well, thank goodness I'm not involved in that, remember that Jesus said that all of us are accountable and will be judged by our words. Matthew 12, 36 and 37. This is the words of Jesus. But I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken, for by your words you'll be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. But while this is true for everyone, the one who teaches God's truth is especially accountable to God for what he says. And therefore, James says, he'll be judged more strictly. I will be judged more strictly on the day of judgment for my words than you will. So he says, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because we know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, if this is the case, what should you do? Well, James says very clearly, don't presume to be a teacher. Don't simply assume, oh, that's the kind of job I fancy. I think I'll do that. I was really thinking of being a hairdresser or a fireman, but maybe I'll be a teacher, a Bible teacher. You see, probably very few children going to school, going to careers advice. You remember that time? Can you remember way back when you got to sort of 15 and you began to think about what you're going to do when you grow up sort of thing? And you go to the careers advisor and the careers advisor sits down and says, well, what subjects are you good at? And have you thought of this career? Have you thought of that? And you go to these career bazaars, you know, you can go around and sample all the different kind of jobs that people want to do. I would imagine that today being a minister or a person who communicates God's word is probably not high on the list of most people. I know growing up, in, uh, working in India for many years, in the Indian subcontinent, parents want their children to be doctors first or engineers second, mostly. Those are the top two careers. But when James writes this, you need to recognize that the role of the teacher with the title of rabbi was held in extremely high esteem in that first century culture. Many Jewish parents prayed that their son would grow up to be a rabbi. Many sons aspired to become a rabbi. The rabbi was held in high esteem. It is said in those days among the Jews that if your house caught fire and you could only rescue your father or the rabbi, you would always rescue the rabbi. That's how highly esteemed the rabbi was. No, I won't say anything if Charlotte Chapel catches fire. But anyway, see the point. <laughs> so James isn't saying, don't choose to become a teacher, but he is saying, don't choose to become a teacher lightly because you will be judged more strictly for everything you say in God's name. So, suppose you are a teacher called by God to communicate his word or maybe you're a young person who feels God is calling me to this ministry and you're wrestling with it. And this morning I say to you, you're going to face strict judgment from God. What should you do? You don't give up teaching. You don't stop speaking. Rather, you choose your words carefully. The teacher who speaks God's word will be judged more strictly for everything he says. So James says, such a teacher strives to be perfect. That is, you aim to teach what God wants you to teach. The truth the whole truth, nothing but the truth. You aim for perfection. 
Now, he's not saying that you reach that goal. He is saying that that is what you strive towards. Someone once said to me, after a particular Sunday, well, it was a great Sunday today. I was preaching morning and evening. You must go home with a great sense of satisfaction. I said, I go home and I lay in bed and think of all the things I wish I'd not said. That I didn't mean to say. That I wish I could take back. We strive towards perfection. In the church office, we have a, a Christian cartoon calendar. And on one of them, there's a picture of a minister. It's a lovely picture. I should have put it on the screen, but a bit too much, really. There's a picture of a minister running through a congregation at the end of a service, doing high fives with the members of the congregation. They're all clapping and cheering. And underneath it says, he's just preached the perfect sermon. It will never happen. Why? Because James says we all stumble in many ways and especially we stumble in the way we speak. Words we shouldn't have spoken, even inadvertently. Words not deliberately. That's what the word stumble here means. It doesn't mean the person who stands up and deliberately says something that they ought not to say. It means the person inadvertently says something you didn't really intend to say. Your words got you carried away. Nonetheless, though we stumble in all ways, we aim not to stumble in what we say. We stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. So, notice what he's saying here. It's very important. He says, so, if you can control your tongue, you will control your whole body. If you can control your tongue... You control your whole body. In his commentary on James, the one I've recommended several times, Douglas Moo comments, So difficult is the mouth to control, so given is it to utter the false, the biting, the slanderous word, so prone to stay open when it were more profitably closed, that the person who has it under control surely has the ability to keep in check other less unruly members of the body. And to make the point that such a small thing as a tongue can have such a large effect on the whole body, James uses two illustrations. These are actually all the illustrations James uses here <coughs> were commonly used by philosophers in the first century. Uh, people have looked in sort of uh, contemporary literature. Sophocles, Aristotle, Plutarch all use these same kind of illustrations. Uh, they hardly need explaining, even in our day. He uses the illustration of the bit of the horse. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. The small bit in the horse's mouth is used to control a large animal and steer it where? In the direction you want it to go. And then he uses the illustration of the rudder and the ship. We've already thought about that in the children's talk. Take ships as, example, as an example. Though they are large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants them to go. The pilot uses a small rudder to steer a large ship wherever he wants it to go, even against strong winds and in storms. So the tongue determines our destiny. It charts the direction of our lives. Now, again, I need to stop and say, do we really believe that? Or do we dismiss the tongue and what it says as of little or lesser importance? We sometimes say, you are what you eat. James says, you are what you speak. You may recall in the Gospels, on one occasion Jesus was criticised by the Jewish religious leaders because his disciples didn't wash their hands ceremonially before they ate, which they felt was very important. 
What Jesus said is this. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, this is what makes him unclean, Matthew 15, 11. And when his disciples later on said they didn't understand what he was talking about, he explained, the things that come out of the mouth, what you say, comes from the heart, who you are, and these make a man unclean, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. Matthew 15, 18 to 19. Now, up to this point, the first few four verses, James has only hinted at the dangers posed by the tongue, for it can head you in the right direction if you steer it properly, where it ought to go. But then he moves on to a second aspect of the tongue, and here there is nothing positive, so here's a second word that may help us to focus on the next four verses. The word destruction, verses 5 to 8. Having compared the tongue to a bit in the mouth of a horse or a rudder on a ship, James now makes the point explicit as he focuses on the enormous effects caused by the tiny tongue. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. J.B. Phillips paraphrases it. The human tongue is physically small, but what tremendous effects it can boast of. And James uses a third illustration to make the point. That of the damage the tongue can cause is like the damage caused by fire. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The the word translated forest is probably the wrong word there uh, for a couple of reasons. It's literally wood, the original, and they didn't have many forests in the first century because people chopped them down for firewood and for building and for making ships and things like that. What he's probably referring to and if you've been to the, that part of the world, to Palestine, Israel, that sort of part of the world where it's very hot, you get this sort of wooden brush everywhere as the dry season goes on and on, and it's highly inflammable, and all you need is a tiny spark to set it alight. I remember as a child on several occasions growing up in Derbyshire, going out onto the moors and seeing the whole moors set ablaze by someone who'd started a tiny fire or maybe dropped a cigarette or a match or something. Whatever the case, the point is clear. It takes just a small spark to set the huge area alight and to do enormous damage. So like the huge damage caused by a tiny spark, so the tongue can ruin a person. Verse 6, the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. Now the damaging effects of words are obvious. For example, a fiery speech can incite a whole community to violence or even inflame a nation to war. A malicious rumour can spread like wildfire and ruin someone's reputation. And often we say something we didn't intend and we ruin someone's reputation in the same way. We say, my words just ran away with me. Someone was pointing out when the elders in the vestry that probably the modern equivalent of this is not only just what you say with your tongue, it's when you press the send button on your email. You ever press the send button and ten seconds later wish you could get it back? They should have, a, you know, one of those things that says confirm afterwards. And suddenly the words have gone racing over and suddenly they're there on someone else's desk and you didn't intend them to read it. You didn't really mean to say what you put in that email and there it is written down. 
But the focus here is on the effect the tongue can have on its owner. James says the tongue is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It's a very difficult phrase to translate. Suggesting that the tongue is a malign influence within a person setting alight every other body part. And James says it corrupts the whole person. The word whole is literally the wheel of life. At every stage of life, the tongue is a dangerous weapon. And then he goes on to say something even more serious. He says, where does it come from, that fire? The source of the fire is hell itself. The word for hell is Gehenna. Literally the Valley of Hinnom, which is a place just outside Jerusalem. It had once been used for pagan worship, and now at the time James wrote, was a rubbish tip, and you throw all the rubbish in there, and it was constantly burning and simmering, full of worms and, degre- uh, and, and decay. The rubbish tip, where fires continually burn, and so it came to be used for hell. Jesus himself spoke about Gehenna on several occasions, very forcefully, to describe the place of final judgment and torment, the abode of the devil and his minions, and eternal fire. Now, James says the destructive power of the tongue comes from hell and the prince of hell. The devil puts words into the mouths of people, and not just those we might think are his obvious candidates but also the unwary and the unthinking. You remember that occasion when Peter turned to Jesus, when Jesus had just explained that he must go to the cross, and he said, not so, Lord, never. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. It's Matthew 16:23. Now, this raises the whole issue of words to a different and more serious level should make us pause to think before we speak. For unless we deal with the source of the fire, we may end up in the place of fire, in hell itself. That's how serious the issue of the tongue is. And were that enough, James goes on to say that taming the tongue is an impossible task. He says, just think what man can do. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, creatures of the sea are being tamed, have been tamed by men in the account of creation in the book of Genesis. We learn that the Lord gave human beings the mandate to rule over, not to exploit, creation and the animal kingdom. The same four categories of creation are described here. And in the time in which James lived, if you've read any contemporary stories, the Romans loved these amphitheaters where they had wild animals brought in from all over the world and did shows with them. So it is today with even more exotic species. We can tame tigers, train parrots to talk, fly falcons, train killer whales, goodness knows what. But James is not concerned to talk about the morality of doing this, but simply on the fact that human beings can actually do this. He says, you know, imagine you can tame a killer whale, but he says... What man cannot do, no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. The tongue is restless, that is, it's never still. It's always likely to break out by saying something evil that is hurtful or damaging or just unwise. And even more, it's full of deadly poison, like a snake's venom, it poisons its victims. Now, this is a problem for everyone. You may say, I am the strong, silent type, I don't say much. Sometimes what you don't say can be as bad as what you do say when you should say something. It's very significant, if you know the Bible well, when the Apostle Paul begins to outline the great themes of the Gospel, he begins by explaining that all have sinned, 
all have fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one who has not failed. And look at the evidence he cites from the Old Testament. Romans 3, 12 to 14. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. It's all some uh, sins of the tongue. Now, if this is the case, and no man can tame the tongue, what hope is there for any of us? James doesn't say specifically here. That's not the point. He's stating the damage here. But he is also making the point, and we'll come to it in a moment, that such things should not be evident in the lives of those who have genuine faith, those who have been given new birth through the word of truth. Chapter 1, verse 18. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, comes to live within you to produce holy living and holy talking. Let me simply suggest that there is a different kind of fire from that of hell. On the day of Pentecost, the followers of Jesus were filled with the Holy Spirit and Luke records in Acts 2, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. They began to speak a different kind of language. Not just in this case, foreign languages, but the language of the Spirit. They began to speak about Jesus. A message which offered hope to those whose lives had been ruined by words from hell. Words like those of Jesus, full of grace and truth. And if you have genuinely received the Holy Spirit, if God has come to work within you, then the life of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, will be, begin to be seen in what you do, do and heard in what you say. And James is quite clear. If there is no change... If you still talk the same way you've always talked, then your faith is dead. You're fooling yourself. So James turns to a third and final area relating to the tongue. After the themes of direction and destruction, let me suggest a third word, division. James now shifts from the damage the tongue can do to the fact that it can be used for two contrasting purposes, verses 9 to 12. Two contrasting uses of the tongue. Look what he writes in verses 9 and 10. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. We're familiar with the idea of the person we say, we don't mean the person who talks out of both sides of his mouth. But we've all seen the, the cowboy films where the Indian says, white man speak with forked tongue. You know what they mean. You say one thing and do something else. And James is saying something here similar, something similar here. He returns to a person with divided allegiance. You remember in chapter 1, he described him as a double-minded person. Verse 7. Now he describes him as a double-tongue man. Someone who can be praising God in church on Sunday and cursing at work on Monday his colleague, a man who James says has been made in the likeness of God. And James says, this kind of thing is not acceptable for the Christian. My brothers, this should not be so. It should not be so for the Christian. And not only that, he goes on to say it cannot be so. And to make the point, he turns to three more illustrations from the world of his day with three questions. Question one, can the same spring produce both fresh water and salt water? A spring doesn't produce fresh water one day, salt water the next. 
Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Trees and plants bear fruit in kind. Again, echoes of the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Anything else is an impossibility. Can a salt spring produce fresh water? The point is even more explicit. For salt water like that in the Dead Sea was regarded as toxic and bad. You couldn't drink it. Something bad cannot produce something good. So the answer to all the questions is the same. No. And what James says to his readers, what God says to us this morning, is very clear, but is very challenging. If a person claims to have been born again of the Holy Spirit, then the result should be holy living. And holy speech is one of the clearest indicators of this. If the same tongue is repeatedly used for praising and cursing, there is something fundamentally wrong. Douglas Moo comments, The imagery conveys an important warning. Only a renewed heart can produce pure speech. And consistently, though not perfectly, pure speech is to be the product of a renewed heart. And as we come to a conclusion, I simply ask you to examine your own life and examine your own speech, as I've tried to do as I've prepared this, and say, do I have a renewed heart? Does what I reflect, does what I say communicate what Jesus would say and what Jesus is like. We say, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus say? Very interesting, James wrote this. Most people believe, and I believe, that he was the half-brother of Jesus. He would have grown up with Jesus, his older brother, all those years, and he would have listened to him speaking. Perfect speech. All those years. That's the kind of thing that should be seen in those who have been born again of the Holy Spirit. Unless this is the case, I'm fooling myself, my faith is dead. Word of conclusion. And it's helpful little book on James. It's quite a big book with lots of small chapters. If you want a, book, a good book on James that's more of a preacher's book, uh, the evangelist John Blanchard is called Truth for Life. He concludes this chapter on James 3 by mentioning a friend who told him one of the most challenging sermons he ever heard. The title of the sermon was Ten minutes after the benediction. And he describes it as follows. The sermon spoke of those who moved in moments from the gloria to gossip, from creed to criticism, from worshipping God to wounding men. He then asked, can we plead not guilty to that sort of thing? This is the kind of inconsistency James is attacking. And it is little wonder that he adds, my brother's this should not be. The thing is not only inconsistent, it is iniquitous. So let's be careful what we say. Let's examine our lives and our words. We began with a prayer from the Psalms before hearing God's word. Let me conclude with another brief verse from the Psalms as a final prayer. Prayer after hearing God's word. And at the end, let's say Amen together. A prayer after hearing God's word. Psalm 141, verse 3. Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Amen.